This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, it, Walter, it's such a treat to have you back here. It's great to be back in this building and uh, seeing Ben Franklin, my old friend, uh, <laughs> sitting out there and be back at Penn and back with you. We've I, had a lot of good times together. I love how you have friends who've been dead for hundreds of years. Yeah, some of my <laughs> best friends. <laughs> Um, so I, I want to talk about so many fascinating people you've written about, but also a little bit about your own life. Uh, you've run the Aspen Institute, uh, had leadership roles at CNN, you were the editor at Time, um, but you've also been the biographer of, I think, some of the greatest innovators in human history. The new book is, is Da Vinci. How do you write a biography of someone who lived half a millennium ago? You know, the good thing about Leonardo da Vinci is he left 7,200 pages of notebooks. We can look every day of his mind dancing across nature, you know, sort of loving how curls of water work, then just doing a stab at the math and showing how it's the same spiral as a curl of hair, and then drawing the Mona Lisa, you know, the hair of the Mona Lisa, starting to sketch it out. And it turns out, I mean, I look at the audience, and at least when I came in, everybody's got the computer open, and we all keep notes digitally these days. When I tried to do Steve Jobs' period in the 1990s, you know, when he was in the wilderness between his stints at Apple, he worked at Next Computer. And I, we went back to try to get all the emails and the memos. He couldn't get them out of his machine. The operating system couldn't retrieve them anymore. But paper is a really good technology for the storage of information. <laughs> 500 years later, you know, I can be saying, wow, look what he did in his notebook, you know? and and. I made uh, just a plug for the publisher. Um, I asked Simon and Schuster who did this book. I said, look, do it all on art paper. Not one of these things where you put the things in the center. I want it throughout to be that heavy quality, coded yeah. color, you know, images throughout. Because I just wanted to show that paper is actually sometimes good for uh, transmitting info. So why, why Da Vinci? You've, I mean, you've picked a lot of original thinkers throughout history, yeah, but how have you written him? a lot about you know, leadership, and you've written about innovation and creative leadership. And you've seen the patterns. And it takes me a while to see the patterns. I mean, I started with Ben Franklin, mainly. I mean, I've done some books before. And then you know, Einstein, then Steve Jobs. And the pattern, after a while, wasn't that they were smart. Because if you're at Penn, you've met lots of smart people, and they don't usually amount to much. You know, they're a dime a dozen. This is good news yeah, for all yeah. of you. Yeah. And, but what's interesting is when they're innovative or creative, as in your books. And I said, well, what's the pattern that does that? And the pattern tends to be, or at least one of the patterns, to be curious across disciplines. You're at a university now that pioneered crossing disciplines, as opposed to other Ivies that really do have you know, departments and disciplines much more siloed. Ben Franklin, of course, did that. He goes up and down the coast looking at how swirls of uh, air resemble the swirls of the northeastern storms, and then he discovers the Gulf Stream. Same with Leonardo. He sees patterns across nature. And so when I was doing Steve Jobs, he would end his product presentations um, always with the intersection of the arts and, and technology. Now, he said, at that intersection is where creativity happens. And he said to me, um, Leonardo's the ultimate of that. And then Bill Gates, who you've you know, talked to, 
he bought the Codex Lester, the science, one of the science notebooks of Leonardo. And so that ability not just to be connect art and science, but in Leonardo's case, to make no distinction between the beauty of art and science, that's why he was sort of the final mountain to climb in this series of books. But I'll turn it back to you, because people like myself write biographies. And then people like you actually distill the wisdom of the biographies. We're just the storytellers. How do you take like a set of biographies and say, I'm going to find the lessons that you put in your course in your books? You can't turn this around on me. This is my interview. Oh, <laughs> I'm used to being the moderator. <laughs> well, we're going we're to have two moderators here. So, no, I mean, look, I think, I, th I think your point about pattern recognition is really important. And I think that, to me, studies of, of creative people are just looking at you know, lots of people's experiences at once, as opposed to you know, doing one person's experience in a lot of depth. And I think that you know, what's, what's interesting about that for me is I think there's a ton we can learn from da Vinci. And I want to I hear some of the practical takeaways mm -hmm. for the audience. I also think, though, it, it seems like it's unfair. Like, I want to live in da Vinci's era, because no one knew anything. So you could, you, know, you could be an architect and a scientist and a great painter and you know, get to excellence much quicker in each of those fields than you can today. Is it, is it too late for a Renaissance man or woman today? Well, here, I'll, I'll flip up Florence. Um, at age 12, he goes to Florence. And you're right. Suddenly, people aren't in one discipline. You know, it's not as if they, he worked for Andrea Verrocchio, one of the workshops there. And people said, well, that was an art studio he worked for. No, it did everything. If you look, I can't figure out exactly how to make the whoops, laser work. That wasn't it. But um, if I can do the, uh, well, just look at the top of the Duomo, uh, you know, the dome. And Leonardo, at age 12, solders the copper ball and does the engineering to put it on top of Brunelleschi's dome. So you have Brunelleschi doing, you know, and Alberti doing perspective, but they're connecting to art. Leonardo is connecting as a 12-year-old to engineering. I feel like I was a loser 12-year-old yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want that. to know how good he looked when he was 12? There, <laughs> there is, um, on the far left, a statue of David that Verrocchio did. And if you look at one of the notebooks of somebody else in the shop, there in the middle is Leonardo at age probably 12 or 13 uh, posing for that statue. So he was a misfit. I mean, he was like Steve Jobs talked about, here's the misfits, the rebels, the round pegs, in the square hole, those who think different. He was you know, illegitimate, which was lucky for him, being born out of wedlock. He didn't have to be a notary like his father and grandfather and great-grandfather. Um, he was gay. He was left-handed. He was vegetarian. He was a radical. And he was beloved in the town of Florence. They accepted that. And they assumed, like Leonardo, that you could learn everything you wanted about anything you wanted. We could still be a little bit more like that, to answer your question. Meaning, we silo ourselves too much. We specialize too much. The biggest takeaway from this book is just stay curious about everything. If you look at his notebooks, and I mean, I can find a typical notebook page. Um, that's a typical notebook page. You know, it's, it has him doing his old craggy warrior, which he's doing for one of the uh, uh, pageants of place. But he has a tree branching into the torso because he's discovered the law of branching, which is that the cross-sections area of each of the branches totals the cross-sectional area of the trunk. But he discovered the same is true 
of our arteries and veins. And the same is true of river, uh, uh, you know, of a river and its tributaries. And on the very top left, he's doing the swirls of water like, but then he's doing a curl of hair and doing the stab at the math, the Fibonacci's equation, that would do a curl, and then he's, or spiral, and then he's doing squaring the circle, trying to figure out ways to transform a square into a circle of the exact same size, which is almost impossible because pi is an irrational number, but he's, you know, just curious. And then the main thing is on the left-hand side, he makes a list every day almost of here's what I want to learn. Why is the sky blue? The things you and I asked when we were 10, but we outgrow our wonder years. Uh, why do fish swim faster in water than birds fly in air when water is heavier? I mean, just sort of, and my favorite on this page, actually, after, you know, a whole bunch of others, is describe the tongue of the woodpecker. Now, who wakes I've up often one, wondered yeah, about that. <laughs> who wakes up one morning and says, I got to know what the tongue of a woodpecker looks like? How would you even find out? I mean, what, get a woodpecker? You know, and yet he's Leonardo. It's not because he needs it to do his studies of the flight of birds. It's not because he needs it to paint a painting. He needs it because he's Leonardo. And he just, to answer your question, wants to know everything you can possibly know about everything that could be known. Gates once said, when he was, Bill Gates, when he was trying to talk me into this book, he said he was the last, this sort of answers your question, the last person in history who could aspire to know everything there was to know about everything that was knowable. I am not sure that's totally true. I mean, Ben Franklin aspired to do that. And you know what? You and I can aspire to do that. You know, with Wikipedia and the Internet, any rabbit hole you want to go down, you know, I mean, I was just walking over and somebody wanted to take a picture who was named Beowulf, and I was trying to remember what, you know, Grendel's den, what, you know, what was, and boom, I could geek out on what it, so just staying curious is the main lesson. How did he decide what to be curious about? Because it seemed like he was interested in everything, but he went deeper on some subjects than others. Yes and no. Anything that came into his field of vision, he got curious about. I mean, he decided, all right, I want to do flying machines. Then he does studies of the flights of birds. Then he does anatomical drawings where he's like, you know, uh, he does... All right, I'm going to do military machines, uh, and then I'm going to do the design of churches, of Vitruvian man. And, uh, but then he says, okay, I'm going to do anatomical drawings. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe if he gave me an hour, I could think of it. If I could think of one topic that crossed his field of vision in which he didn't just go down layer after layer. I mean, he needs some of these, like he starts his anatomical drawings because he wants to paint. St. Jerome in the wilderness, and he can't quite get, uh, there it is, he can't quite get the neck muscles right. But after a while, he's not just dissecting neck muscles, he's dissecting the heart, the liver, you know, he just drills down. So I guess it's, it's weird when I think about this, because, you know, he's, he's accomplishing all of these things that we remember him for so many years later. And yet, he was frustrated, from what I've read, yeah. during a lot of this experience. What was it like to be da Vinci, from what you understand? Well, you know, the good thing about his notebooks is we can see, first of all, that he's human. That he makes math mistakes. That he leaves things unfinished. That he, you know, paints, uh, or, you know, comes up with 
you know, crossbows that never fire, you know, could fire, or tanks that can never roll, or rivers that weren't diverted. And after, for a while, I'm thinking, okay, he's pretty flawed. He, he doesn't finish this thing. But then I realized he's just pretty human. I mean, he just holds on to things until he can perfect it. And he despairs. Every time later in life when he got a new pen, I think it was. I mean, I'm sort of surmising this, but it's over and over in the notebooks, and it looks like he has a new pen nib. And, you know, have you, well, I guess nobody gets new pen nibs anymore. But if you're just doodling, and he draws his craggy warrior, his boyfriend, Salai, when he's doodling, but he also just draws this, uh, writes this line over and over, tell me, tell me, did I ever accomplish anything? Tell me, tell me, did I ever get anything done? And so you realize, okay, he also despaired. I was, I was shocked when I first read that he was a serious procrastinator. He <laughs> like, loved it. He told, <laughs> he told the Duke of Milan when um, Leonardo was painting The Last Supper, you know, by this point, he's famous, so people would, he'd have an audience. He'd come in, and he'd go into the refectory, the dining hall at the uh, monastery, and he'd just stand there for all, and finally he'd just do one stroke, and he'd leave. And the Duke said, you know, hey, you know, what about my painting? And Leonardo explained to him, he said, sometimes when you're creative, you accomplish the most when you seem to be working the least, because you're bringing things together, you're letting them gel, you're intuiting what you're going to do. Isn't that just an excuse for yes. not working? Yes. It is, and he doesn't finish some paintings. Um, he was a procrastinator. On the other hand, he does finish a lot of paintings, and The Last Supper is pretty good. <laughs> but, by the way, because he procrastinated so much, it started flaking off the wall, because when you do a fresco, you're supposed to do it when the plaster is wet. Oh, I think it worked out okay for his career, yeah, all well, things considered. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. What, what else did you, did you find that's relevant to us today beyond the importance of being curious? Well, I like the fact that imagination and fantasy played such a big role. Because what we do is we take a 10-year-old you know, who's inordinately curious about all sorts of things. I was walking from, in the airport, Philadelphia airport, and some kid is 10 years old asking his father, why is that you know, shirt this way, or what's, what's this like? You know, all the, finally, the father says what every father says at a certain point, which is shut up and quit asking so many stupid questions. And the kid, eventually, by age 15, shuts up and quits asking questions. Also, it's quit daydreaming. I mean, and, but Leonardo always daydreamed. One of the things I learned in his notebook is, if I can find it, is that one of the main things he did in life was a theatrical, uh, uh, you know, pageants and plays. And when he's in his 20s, that's his main job, is costumes for the big pageants and plays that the Medici family are putting on. And part of it, like this famous drawing, you think, okay, yeah, everybody says, oh, yeah, I remember, didn't he invent the helicopter? Because everybody knows this drawing. Well, that was originally done in his notebook to bring the angels down from the rafters at a performance of a particular play. But he always allows his imagination to blur into a challenge in reality. And so he goes on to try to design flying machines. So I think sometimes it's let your imagination uh, you know, push you a little bit. Don't be afraid of daydreaming and then trying the impossible. So you mentioned Steve Jobs a few times, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it sounds like he was one of the reasons you wrote this book. Yeah. I guess when, when Steve Jobs tells you to write a book, you have to do it. <laughs> um, 
you, you got to do that process totally differently. Uh, so with, with the others that you profiled, it's been a historical look at people who are no longer with us. In the Jobs case, you spent many, many hours with him and, and also many people who knew him well. Um, what was the experience like getting to know who, the person who many people sort of view as the greatest innovator of our time? Well, he was a deeply spiritual, uh, very intense person who, you know, if you've read the book, had rough edges and was nasty at times and mean, but also having driven people crazy, they'd also walk through walls for him. He'd drive them to do things that they didn't know they could do. And so the question is, you know, how do you get that intense personality? And of course, working with him, you know, I was daily, because I, you know, sometimes spent days on end, either staying at his home or nearby, uh, subject to watching him sort of have that very mercurial, as he put it, uh, personality. Uh, and it was difficult, especially when it was clear he wasn't going to beat the cancer. And he was angry at times, you know, on painkillers at times, and saying things at times that I thought, you know, I mean, about people I knew were his friends or, you know, people very close to him. And that presented, I know we're not at the Annenberg School, we're at the Wharton School, but a journalistic dilemma. Because all my life, it was always to try to get people to say things that then would be kind of explosive and exciting. There was a lot I ended up leaving out of the book where I thought, okay, he's just said some really mean things that are going to be, and I had to balance how enlightening will that be for the reader versus how hurtful that will be for the people he's talking about. And it's on balance, I'd say, okay, I'm going to leave some things out. Because also, I'm not sure he really meant it. There was a anger, if I may say, near the end of his life and a painfulness near the end of his life. And so that was a hell of a lot more intense than you know doing good Ben Franklin or Leonardo. I think we both know a fair number of entrepreneurs who have sort of held Jobs up as their role model and said, "Look, you know, he he wasn't the nicest guy in the world, and you know that's proof that this is sometimes how you have to be." Did he succeed in spite of or because of his cruelty? In your view? Um, and I'm going to turn this one back on you too, but I'll start with my answer. <laughs> not not exactly that, but do you have to be? When I started working on Steve Jobs, Woz, Wozniak said to me, the main question you have to answer is, did he have to be so mean? Then I talked to Andy Hertzfeld, one of the original 20 kids on the Mac team. And Andy said, you just got to ask him. You got to figure out, did he have to be this cruel? Did he have to be this mean? Over and over again. In fact, at the beginning of the book, I think I quote a lot of people as saying that. And at the end of the book, I quote Waz, I say, okay, tell me what you think. And he said, well, if I had run Apple, um, I would have been much nicer. I would have been more like a family. I would have made sure we all had stock options. I would have not yelled at people uh, as much. And then Waz paused and said, and if I had run Apple, we probably wouldn't have done the Macintosh. And so each person gets the answer by the end of the book, did he have to be so mean? And most of them would say, he didn't have to be this mean, but I ended up wanting to walk through a wall for him. When I asked Steve at the end of the book, did you have to be so mean? Did you have to be so cruel to people? He said to me, you know, I guess blaming the East Coast, he said, you East Coast polite types 
always speak as if you have velvet gloves on. I mean, it's a weird metaphor, and you know, <laughs> velvet, and, and you always sugarcoat your words. When people do something that sucks, I just have to tell them it sucks, because I'm just a middle-class kid trying to make sure I don't have B players on my team. And so I, don't, I can't afford to be as gentle and as nice. Now, I do not try to answer the question fully in the book. I want each reader of Steve Jobs to address the question at the beginning, to read the book, to see some of the answers at the end, and to answer it for themselves. There are a lot of people who've come up to me in the old days when I used to talk more about Steve Jobs, and they'd say, you know, I'm just like Steve Jobs. I'm a boss, and I'm like him. So what do you mean? So, well, if something does, if somebody does something that sucks, I just tell them. I said, yeah, have you ever invented the iPod? <laughs> have you ever created the iPhone? Have you ever designed the Mac? And of course, you don't have a lot of leeway to do that, even if you have invented the iPod. And I guess my answer in late retrospect, not something I would have put in the book, is no, you don't have to be that mean. You don't have to be cruel to people. You have to be tough and you have to be intellectually honest, which sometimes I have trouble doing because I'm almost at the other extreme as a manager, which is, oh, if there's a tough thing to say to somebody, I try to get my deputy, you know, you go down. Yeah. <laughs> Where, but um, I look at a lot of great bosses you've written about, and they're intellectually rigorous. Bezos is, Bill Gates is but they're basically nicer. <laughs> and your answer? Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 you were asked at some point, you know, what, what's the one piece of advice that you would have given to Jobs? And you said he could have been kinder. And that, that resonated a lot for me. You know, I, I, I never met him, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people who worked closely with him. And very consistently, they say, look, you know, the, a great boss is just like a great parent. Uh, as our own Angela Duckworth would describe it, they're both demanding and supportive. And you know, he, he sort of left out the support of a lot. And you know, sometimes he took the demanding way too far. I think what's, what's kind of interesting about it is it seems like he evolved over the course of his career. And you talk about this in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I always wonder, like, if he had been kinder to other people, would he have been kicked out of his own company? Um, well, no. I mean, he had alienated, this is in 84, for those who haven't read the book, late 84, maybe early 85. After the Mac, the original Mac comes out in 84 with a wonderful 1984 ad. And then by 85, he's out. Partly because he's too much of a professor. I mean, he has held up shipping the original Macintosh right at the end. Because at the end, he looks at the circuit board inside and he tells the engineers, the circuit board, it sucks, it's ugly. They said, Steve, it's in a sealed case. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to know. And, they said, and he says, yes, but you will know. And you've fucked up. You've made it something that sucked. And you're going to know that. And so they hold up shipping the Mac until they make the circuit board inside beautiful. Now, that is not something you should teach at Wharton. On the <laughs> other hand, at the end, when they get it right, he tells them all to sign a whiteboard, all 30 engineers on the Mac team, and Stephen P. Jobs in lowercase, his little signature, and they engrave it on the inside of the Mac, and he says, real artists sign their work. If you look at um, Leonardo for a second, I mean, I'll just take any of his, un you know, take some unfinished paintings he does. That'd uh, uh, say Jerome in the Wilderness, and as I said, he just wouldn't ship it until it got finished. 
And 25 years later, he's doing those anatomy drawings and trying to perfect the neck. When you get to the greatest you know, painting, I think, of all time, you know, it's, a, it's the wife of a cloth merchant and, uh, in Florence. And the cloth merchant never gets the picture of his wife because Leonardo keeps it for 16 years, putting 200 or 300 tiny glazed brushstrokes to get the lips right, carries with him to France, everywhere else. So sometimes you have to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But as Steve learned, to get back to your question, he comes back in the late 1990s, and he's always saying, you know, real artists sign their work. Real artists don't let go until it's perfect. And they give him a little sign when he comes back that says, real artists ship, which means sometimes <laughs> you get the damn product out the door. And he has learned to do that by 1999. I'm curious about other evolutions sort of between the old jobs and the new jobs. Um, I, I know at some point when he was coming back to Apple, he said uh, he was asked what, what it was like to be forced out. And he said that um, the, the patient rejected the medicine, but it was needed. And how did, how did you... I don't remember that, and I can't figure out, was he talking about Apple rejected the medicine and it was needed? He, or he, he didn't like it, but he felt it was good for him. Yeah, he felt it was good for him, okay. And um, I was wondering what, what your perception of, of how he changed was. So who, who was the new well, Steve Jobs? Well, yes and no. Um, there are two times when you think he's going to change. A, when he comes back to Apple after having been fired, and when he comes back from Memphis having had a liver transplant and knowing that the cancer is spread. And in both cases, you're sort of saying, okay, he's now going to be kinder and gentler. And he is a bit, but then he's still Steve. And even the very, I think I have the scene in the book, they all come out to meet him at the private airport near Cupertino or whatever when he comes back from his liver transplant. And by the next day, he's like berating everybody for having screwed things up in his absence. So he doesn't fully change, but his spirituality and his feel for other people definitely deepens, and his brutal honesty is at least channeled for a purpose. And it's also diluted, not diluted, but it's balanced by acts of extraordinary kindness and inspiration where he just really does kind things for people that kind of surprise him because he would have berated them the day before in a total way. So he becomes more complex, but not just more simply kind. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Like people, people often say he was a great man, but not a good man. Mm -hmm. what, 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 how do you reconcile the acts of, you know, of, of cruelty with the acts of kindness? Well, uh, you know, I mean, that's why you write, one writes biographies, is there's not seven easy lessons to, you know, this. And that's why my biographies tend to be a bit long, because they're complicated things that I begin, I always begin my biographies in a very simple way, which is when the person is born, and I, you know, take them through, because, you know, in the end the person dies, because every year we grow and things happen. So who you are is a narrative that accumulates. And, you know, he had a very complicated early life in which he was, uh, you know, like Leonardo, born out of wedlock, put up, unlike Leonardo, put up for adoption and craving the affection of, you know, both, you know, uh, he eventually finds out who his birth uh, 
father and mother are. And, but I don't try to psychoanalyze him. I just, I mean, I just try to show in growing up that passion for perfection, that unwillingness to compromise on perfection causes him to feel almost in a Nietzschean fashion a bit like the Superman who is not bound by the usual laws of politeness or even of nature. One of the things I, I think is liberating about your work as sort of a collection, if you think about you know, Jobs, Da Vinci, Franklin, Einstein, the innovators, is you also get to see the varieties of creativity, that there's not one way to do it. And, and by the way, real quickly, the varieties of kindness. I mean, Ben Franklin and Leonardo da Vinci are at the other extreme. They have the more friends than you can possibly imagine. They're deeply kind people. Leonardo da Vinci you know, buys birds in the marketplace so he can free them and see them fly and doesn't want them killed, you know, and, and there's more people in Renaissance Florence and Milan who call him my best friend. So, you know, one of the things about a biography, especially the Steve Jobs, is it's not a how-to book. You're not supposed to read it and say, okay, I will be that way. Uh, there are different varieties of the way to live your life. I do think it's encouraging, though, at some level, when you, when you see these different people and you say, look, you know, okay, maybe I'm not like Jobs, yeah. but I can see some of my qualities in, in other great innovators. What are some of the starkest differences you've seen in how they work? Yeah, well, one thing is innovators, creative people, tend to be very different. And the people who are the most innovative and successful realize that you then have to put together a team of people with different styles and different talents whether it's Ben Franklin, whose greatest contribution as a founder was not being the smartest founder, because you know you got Jefferson, Madison, and all these, not being the most passionate, because you got John Adams and his cousin Samuel, or even the man of great you know, gravitas like Washington. It's he knew how to put together a team. Who's going to play shortstop? Who's going to play, you know, who's going to be the right or whatever? So he puts together a team, whether it's to do the Declaration or the Constitution or whatever. When I asked Steve Jobs when he was dying, what was your best product? I thought he'd say the Mac or the iPhone. He said, no, making a Mac or an iPhone is hard, but making a team that will always turn out Macs and iPhones, that's the hard part. So you have to get the different talents, the Johnny Ive with his temperament, but beauty and sense of spirit, the Tim Cook who knows you know, how to keep the supply chains right. All these people have to be put on a team, and that's... The main thing I think you should learn, both at a place like Wharton or in life, which is you're not going to play every position. How do you get a team around you that innovates? This is a Bob Noyce is the best example, but I'll leave that for a later class. Uh, this is, I, I think this is interesting on a couple levels. Um, but one is you know, kind of reflecting on your career as an innovator. And we, one of the things we always like to ask authors when they come is, what's the worst piece of career advice you've ever been given? Go to CNN. Uh, <laughs> dare I ask why? Well, you don't have to I, yeah. I mean, I worked for Time Warner, and I was a journalist, and I loved the printed word. I loved deep reporting. And after a while, Time Warner also owned CNN. It was like, okay, you've edited time, now you've got to 
I said, well, actually, not good at TV. It's not something I know very well. And you know, the bosses I had said, oh, yeah, but you can learn it, you can get the team, you can master it, and you can, you know, it's a big enterprise, you know how to manage. And I did not know myself well enough, which is one of the things that made me okay as a leader at Time Magazine is I knew, I knew how to put together that magazine as well as anybody there. If somebody would say, we can't put that picture in because it would crop badly, I'd say, no, just crop it from the left side, put it through the gutter, and bleed it on the right or something. Or I had reported, you know, a Henry Kissinger or a Madeleine Albright. So I knew the report. When I got to CNN, I didn't know how to make TV. I did not, I'd say, well, why don't we have, you know, Christian in Baghdad doing something like this? And they tell, oh, no, we need a donut around a satellite that has to be done with a film, you know. And I had no idea what they were talking about. So I guess the piece of career advice I'd give, which was the opposite of what I got, which is know your strengths and go with your passions to do things. And if you feel like you're going to be pushed to do something that you don't particularly like or know or understand, just say no. And I discovered... I wasn't very good at understanding the intricacies of television. Secondly, I didn't like to deal with big egos in television. I'm sort of, as I said, on the other extreme on the kindness spectrum. So when all these big egos who just love having that red light go on and they want to anchor the president's press, they're all being big ego-like. I was trying to please everybody, and it was a bad, I was a bad manager. And so I decided, okay, I don't manage big enterprises of high ego people well. I don't know television well. I will do things like be in print and be at a think tank like the Aspen Institute and not go try to do things that aren't, I'm not suited for. How do you think about, one of the most interesting things you've been doing at the Aspen Institute has been trying to reimagine the, the future of, of innovation and education. Um, you've, you've just reinforced through the Da Vinci book that we need to put the A in STEAM, yeah. right? Or the A in STEM to make it STEAM and say, look, the arts are often missing from technical education. Where do you see that going? And how can we do a better job at a university of integrating Well, I mean, them? if you look at Steve Jobs, you know, what did he take at Reed College before he dropped out? You know, calligraphy, dance, poetry, you know, fonts, design, everything else. We don't else. offer those courses. Yeah, right. <laughs> and when I hear people being told, you got to learn coding. I mean, it's the main thing to do. Now, our machines are going to be able to code for us. So, you know, there'll be an, if anything artificial intelligence will do, it'll have more, you know, object-oriented coding so that you can, you know, you don't have to do, like, I learned C++ and Pascal. I think Greek and Latin were just as useful in my life. I don't need that. You need to know how... freaked out a quarter right. of the audience. You need to know how coding <laughs> works. You need to know what an algorithm is. You need to know what a logical sequence is and what the language of coding is. But just being a coder is not going to help. It helped you in the 70s, back when the engineers were leading the revolution. But now the revolution is about connecting life sciences and medicine to technology. It's about connecting energy understanding. It's about connecting music and creativity and art. And it's like being like Steve Jobs, who never could code very well. But, and Bill Gates could certainly code extremely well. But when they both do a music player, Bill Gates produces the Zune and Steve produces the iPod. 
And it's because Steve had a feel for the humanities, what people are going to be desiring for the arts, for beauty. He knew that beauty mattered. And so I think that if you just go barreling down the path of I need to know the you know, C++ better than anybody, uh, you're not going to have the creative connections that will make you an innovator. For those of us who... I mean, by the way, you know, look at every one of them. Airbnb, Brian Chesky, the other two guys. Rhode Island School of Design, doing art. You know, Travis. Go to, I mean, almost down the list, any creative innovator has had a background, not just of arts, but of a diverse background. I, I find this a little tricky as, you know, as people who value truth and like evidence. Sometimes I look at aesthetics and say, well, how do you, how do you know? Like, the Mona Lisa is a good example. There's a sociologist, Duncan Watts, who says, what makes the, the Mona Lisa so great? And he goes through all the answers that art critics offer. Mm -hmm. And he says, the only thing that makes the Mona Lisa great is that it's more like the Mona Lisa than any other painting. <laughs> because there's no objective standard. So how do, like, you called that the greatest painting in history. What makes okay. it so great? So what it does... I mean, I think it's good, right? But <laughs> No, no, but what, what why is this better? What makes anything great, whether it's an iPod or a painting, is that we as humans emotionally connect to it and interact with it emotionally. I do that with my iPhone. I do that with the Mona Lisa. There is an emotional connection there. Mm -hmm. So how does that happen? First of all, it comes from having a philosophical view of that you really care... How do we as humans fit into the universe and the cosmos? Leonardo starts out with Vitruvian man as he's standing there spread eagle naked in the earth, the cosmos, and the spirituality. And in every painting he does, from the one, if you remember very early on, the baptism of Christ or Geneva da Vinci, to the Mona Lisa, it's always got the curving rivers coming down from the ancient times that curve into the civilizations that we create into the blood and veins of the human. That's the tree trunk and the warrior on his notebook page. That's Geneva da Vinci. That's the baptism of Christ. That's everything. So emotionally, we are seeing how do we fit in. Secondly, he uses science in so many ways. I mean, just take this notebook page. He's dissected the human eye and learns that at the very center of the retina, we see black and white detail. But on the edge of the retina, we see color and shadow. And he describes how that works. He also is dissected for 14 different pages the muscles of the human face, which ones touch the lips, and which are controlled by the spinal cord nerves or the brain nerves to show, because he's doing it in his notebook, how does inner emotion get reflected in a facial expression. He's done that his whole life, from the Last Supper to every notebook page. But then he does it scientifically, connecting to it. And he makes all sorts of little discoveries about the lips and how they work and all these drawings, including that your bottom lip is a separate muscle, but your top lip isn't, so you can pout out your bottom lip, and you can pout both lips, but you can't pout your top lip alone. I see a few people trying it. Don't do it here. <laughs> All is it. And then when he finally finishes on this, he takes out a piece of chalk in 1503 and starts sketching what will be the most famous smile in history. So just to take the one aspect of this. I can do this for everything. I can do it for the eyes and how they look. But for 16 years, he's putting layer after layer of little glaze there so the light hits the primer coat and comes back, depending differently on how you're looking at it. 
But if you look too, you can look at the very, very edge of the smile here, and the black and white details actually turn down slightly or go straight here. But the color and shadows go upward. So if you're staring directly at her smile from straight ahead, she's elusive. Wait, maybe she's not smiling at me. But you go back and you then turn your head a bit and you're looking at her chin or her cheek or forehead or looking at the river coming into her soul. And suddenly the smile lights up because you're seeing it from a different part of the retina. So it's a virtual reality that's interactive. Every time we have an emotion, she seems to have an emotion that comes back. Every time we see her, there's a different feeling of emotion coming out of it. This is one of 50 things I could tell you that make this the greatest painting ever painted. That was, uh, that was pretty convincing. Okay. <laughs> I, do, I do have two questions for you on it, though. What, one is, why did it take us so long to figure it out? Because I know for the first few hundred years after it was created, it, it didn't stand out, and it wasn't until it was stolen a few times that it became I so valuable. That's true. I, I don't. I actually try to push back on that in my book, because we discovered even relatively recently there's Amerigo Vespucci, you know, the guy who goes, yeah, his cousin, um, whatever, um, somebody Vespucci, is you know taking notes. This is a fun of history. Taking notes in a volume of Cicero, and they talk about Appels, the ancient painter, saying he does this, interactive, etc. And the guy says, just like Leonardo is doing with the wife Lisa of you know Del Giacondo. So a we know that everybody's watching him paint this, that he's pretty well known. Then people are coming just to see his prep drawings for it. They know he's carried around and he's kept it unfinished. So I think it's a little bit of a myth that even people of the time, I mean, uh, there, at the very end of his life, he, has, he carries this thing with him all the way to the end when he's living in France. It was the very last year in France with Francis I as his patron. And cardinals and other delegations come by to his last studio and bedroom because the Mona Lisa is there and they're looking at it. So it was known. It was cool even back then. In fact, it was cooler back then because it, you know, it has varnish on it over the years, and the varnish yellows and darkens. I've been to the Louvre, and they've just cleaned um, St. Anne and Madonna and Child. And all of a sudden, the sky is blue. It's beautiful and gorgeous. And they've cleaned a couple of other of his paintings. But, uh, and Vincent Deluvian, the curator, says, you know, you've got to convince people they have, the French government has to let me clean and restore the Mona Lisa, take the varnish off because the skies, you know, et cetera. But French governments have fallen for less, and so we don't see the Mona Lisa quite as beautiful as they did 500 years ago. The other question I have on this for you before we open it up for the, the audience questions that have been submitted is, he, you said he takes all these breaks along the way and, you know, gets diverted. And, you know, he's, he's doing these optics experiments. And yeah. he, he's like, I guess we won't be painting this year. Right? Yeah. Like, how, how does he well, get he back on track? he sort of juggles a whole lot. I mean, in 1503, he's painting this. He's also, uh, you know, doing his anatomical dissections and uh, still trying to do flying machines, still trying to square the circle. All in, say, 50. So it's all in a given year. But I will say that that does distract him from his painting. This is, as you know, a cloth merchant's wife in Florence. The very first portrait he does, if I can quickly go back, is uh, 
you know, when he's a young, young painter in Florence, he does a cloth merchant's wife, a three-quarters profile in Florence, Ginevra da Benci. It's in the National Gallery in Washington. You can go see it. And um, there it is. And you can see already he's still doing the curving river connecting to the veins of the earth. From the, how do we fit into the soul? And once again, sort of an elusive expressions. But this isn't the Mona Lisa. I mean, the eyelids are too heavy. It's not as good as the Mona Lisa, even though it's almost the same type of painting. Kenneth Clark and other art critics say, it's a shame he wasted so much time doing anatomy and astronomy and math and flying machines and engineering and stuff because it diverted him when he could have finished more paintings. Yeah, he could have finished more paintings, but they would look like this. The difference between Ginevra da Benci and the Mona Lisa is a lifetime spent being curious about everything that you could possibly know, including the tongue of the woodpecker. <laughs> so questions that are submitted. Uh, one, one that I think is fascinating is uh, if da Vinci were a college student today, maybe here at Penn, what would he study? Well, he would obviously be cross-disciplinary. And I, but people ask me, having studied Leonardo da Vinci, whatever, what should I major in? I always, and this, you may or may not want to hear it, but you know, do a dual major and make it slightly whack, you know, music and physics, you know, whatever, um, Spanish literature and uh, applied math. But try to do show that you can cross disciplines. Uh, another Da Vinci question that I, I found really intriguing here is, what, what do you think he would think of the, the biography that you wrote? I don't know. You know, it's hard because uh, uh, I think, you know, he was not somebody deeply personal. In his notebooks, we have sketches of his boyfriend, we have other things, but not a whole lot of personal stuff. And he made, uh, so I think he would have, been puzzled by the contemporary um, desire to know the personal as opposed to just the work. Mm -hmm. And he would, biographies didn't quite exist back then, but Giorgio Vasari, who was a contemporary, did some of, you know, lives of painters type essays. And they're very non-personal. And I think it's you know, something that's only modernity, meaning the past 150 years, we feel that the personal connects to the professional and the art. Mm -hmm. uh, related question, what did Lorraine Powell Jobs think of the Steve Jobs book? I'm going to let her speak for herself. Fair enough. Um, what about the, the challenge of sort of, we, we talked about this earlier, but the, the challenge of, of encouraging people to become polymaths. So not just, not just curious about many things, but real skill in many areas. Do you have recommendations for how we can, we can build that in companies and universities um, and steps we can take in that direction? Yeah, I don't think you have to master every subject, but I think you have to appreciate the beauty of it. Just like Einstein, when he's doing general relativity, having trouble with the tensor calculus, he takes out his violin and he plays Mozart because he actually loves music and he plays violin pretty well. And he says that connects me to the harmonies of the spheres and it helps inspire him to understand the beauty of waves and motion and things like that. So I think we just have to 
and part of it, I'll say this, I sort of more come from the humanities background. Arts and, you know, I, um, I love engineering, I love math. My dad was an engineer, so that's why I wrote about it some. But the reason I started writing about it is I realized that we of humanities background always are doing the lecture, like, oh, we need to put the A in STEM, and we, you know, you gotta learn the arts and the humanities. And you get big applause at places when you talk about the importance of that. But we in the humanities, or in business, or in finance and everything else, also have to meet halfway and learn the beauty of math. Because people tell me, oh, you know, I can't believe uh, somebody doesn't know the difference between, you know, Mozart and Haydn, or they don't say, or uh, Lear and Macbeth. And I say, yeah, but do you know the difference between a resistor and a transistor? Do you know the difference between an integral and a differential equation? You go, oh, no, I don't do math, I don't do science. I say, yeah, but you know what? An integral equation is just as beautiful as a brush stroke on the Mona Lisa. You gotta learn that they're all beautiful. Which, uh, which biography has changed you the most in the way that Leonardo. you think? How? Because every day, walking on Locust Walk, whatever it may be, seeing the uh, river as you know, it's coming in, I think of things that are so mundane, but Leonardo was curious about. Like, why do the ripples move differently than the wind on the face of the water? Ben Franklin asked that as well. As a kid, we probably asked that. But I now pause to look at the ripples and also how the light hits the ripples and how they create luster. What is luster? Um, luster is right there on the curls of Ginevra. Whoops, I'm now making it go back or forward or something. But um, uh, luster is the sort of spot of light. Um, oh, I'm pretty bad at this these days. Uh, uh, all right. Well, it had been. Uh, <laughs> there yeah. was once less. Yeah, it was once easier. Um, if I can't get it now, I'll give up on it. But um, on a curl of hair that's shiny, light hits it and it forms a sparkle. But also, where it's in different places, it hits it and just lights it up in their shadows. If you move your head, the sparkle of what he calls luster, moves differently than the light and the shadow moves. This is something anybody could discover. You don't have to be Einstein or even Leonardo. But when I read that in his notebooks, when I look at light as it was sun was setting and was hitting some of the remaining leaves that were a bit shiny as I walked there, I tried to do my head and just observe things a little bit better. And that's what I, I, you know, from Einstein, I couldn't learn how to do tensor calculus describing the curvature of space-time. But from Leonardo, I learned everything in life. You know, how does my finger get diffracted? When I look, why does it get diffracted that way? And then, when I decide to paint the $450 million painting, uh, you know, Salvador Mundi, it's like, okay, I'm gonna paint the orb, but I'm not gonna do the diffraction. Whoops, there it is. Like, okay, it doesn't diffract the robes. And so you notice things like that more, and you say, okay, he's imparting a miraculous quality to Christ as Savior of the world, that nothing he touches is distorting, uh, but that 
noticing the details in life is something I can learn from Leonardo. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of details, one of, uh, one of the things that there are multiple questions on is how do you get to know the details of, of people's lives? I think we all are trying to get to know the people around us better. Do you have favorite questions, favorite ways of starting an inquiry to really understand someone? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing I feel as a biographer is that for a guy, if you're writing from Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Einstein, Leonardo, it's often all about dad. I mean, in fact, if you read any memoir from, you know, Bill Clinton describing his stepfather, actually, or Obama saying, I guess every boy is trying to either live up to the sins of his father or the dreams of his father, and for me it's both, or Richard Nixon, I was born in a house my father built. So I look at Steve Jobs, and he keeps talking about the influence, in this case, of his, what he calls his father, he, the person who is his father, but adoptive father. Likewise, Einstein, whose father goes bankrupt trying to do uh, light, use electricity, I mean, do the electricity for certain cities. Leonardo living up to his father, because Leonardo's illegitimate, and his father never makes him an heir, but, you know. So I could give a hundred examples, but it begins with the relationship to parents. Hmm. And how did these, when you think about your different, your different innovators that you profiled, how did they define success? What were they after? They were not after money. I mean, Steve Jobs could have made a lot more money at Apple. And he was always trying to make the product better. I'll give you a tiny example. I remember, and you probably do, the Mac, the new Mac that came out in 2000, after he returns, and it's sort of that beautiful curved thing, and it's in a few colors, it's slightly translucent, and there's a handle on it. And they say, well, this is a desktop machine we don't need the handle. People aren't really supposed to move it around. And they, and they said, it'll cost another $60, he's told, or whatever. I can't remember the number. And he said, no, the handle is there because it makes the machine approachable. My mom, she's afraid of her computer. But if there's a little thing she can put her hand in, she can touch it, and she knows it won't break, and it makes her connect emotionally to the computer better. And that was right but it cost money, and it made it so the Mac didn't make as much. Likewise, Leonardo doesn't deliver the Mona Lisa to the cloth merchant, doesn't deliver Adoration of the Magi to the church. So he's doing it and keeping it. So sometimes you have to say, whether you're on the board of directors of an airline or whether you're starting a company, it's we can't have our lodestar be return on investments profits and relative margins, those are our only lodestars. A lodestar has to be, are we making a product people will always love? Bezos does that, Steve Jobs did it, Leonardo did it. What's next for you? Is there a, a next biography to come? I don't think I'm going to try to do another big biography. I'm moving to New Orleans, as you may know, teaching at Tulane. Um, and I'll probably do a book about the 1890s in New Orleans, a woman named Lulu White, who was um, Creole, Octoroon, one-eighth black. And she opened um, Mahogany Hall, which was the best music and um, sporting house, they called it, in Storyville, the red light district. Hires Jelly, um, uh, Jelly Roll Morton to be a pianist, and then uh, young Louis Armstrong comes and plays. 
Uh, but what happens is crossing the color line is very important back then in New Orleans with the Creole society. It's, but one of her friends, Homer Plessy, who lives on Basin Street, where she is, goes down to Frenchman Street and boards the train, and he's an octoroon, and they ask him to sit in a colored car. And he refuses, and it becomes Plessy v. Ferguson, and they have to start drawing the color line after that. America did not need to draw a color line, especially in places like New Orleans, where it was very variable. So I want to do something about race, class, um, sex, and all that jazz. <laughs> Emphasis on jazz. Yeah. Uh, in closing, for an audience of students who, assuming many of them are aspiring to be more creative, more innovative, are there any other tips that you would offer or myths to bust? I'll just uh, tell you something small. The tongue of the woodpecker is three times longer than the beak. And when the woodpecker hits the bark at 10 times the force that would kill a human, the tongue wraps around the brain and cushions it so the woodpecker can do woodpecking. There's absolutely no reason you need to know that. <laughs> it is totally useless information, just as it was totally useless to Leonardo, and there was no reason he needed to know it. But my tip is, just like when you said, wow, when I told you about it, just like Leonardo, every now and then, it's good to just know something for pure curiosity's sake, just out of curiosity. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Adam. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.